0: good morning lakeside it is good to meet together in this way again and we are on our second last in a series of five on the five ones of christian behavior and behavior that we see throughout the christian church and work out in our christian life and uh, we started with one time for worship and talked about how we are a people who worship god because he is worthy and because we are satisfied in him And then we looked at one time for prayer and the daily need that we have for prayer, to rely on God for our provision and for all that he supplies. And then last week we considered one group for discipleship and the importance of meeting in small groups and why God organized his church that way and why we've seen all through history, uh, churches that might gather in large meetings on Sunday continue to gather in small groups for discipleship and encouragement and to minister together and then this week we are looking at one ministry for service so we have one time of worship one time one gathering for worship one time of prayer one group for discipleship and one ministry for service and again as we consider the church and we consider the christian life uh, down through history for the last 2,000 years, everywhere you've found Christians gathering together and living out the Christian life, you've found them serving the church, each other, serving their community, even serving their enemies, uh, as well as those that are in need. And so we see this clearly in the New Testament, just like we did with other behaviors that we've talked about. Uh, in Acts chapter 6, you have the seven helpers who are assigned to aid in the benevolence of the early church. In Acts chapter 9, you have Tabitha. Jesus' half-brother James exhorts the church, especially in his letter, but so does John in his epistles, and Peter and Paul in theirs. It's frequently addressed in the early church that there is really um, so often it's addressed that there's really no effort really required to acknowledge that Christians are meant to serve. They're meant to serve each other and meant to serve the world. But how is Christian service uniquely Christian and what sets it apart? What motivates Christian service? How do we do it? Why are we doing it? What's the purpose of it? These are really the questions that we need answered as we consider uh, in our Christian life, the importance of serving uh, in the body of Christ. I'm just gonna open up in a word of prayer and then we're going to look into this topic from God's word. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these common spiritual disciplines and practices that you've given your church. The fact that we do gather, we do pray. The fact that we do disciple one another, that we serve, and as we'll see next week, that we do share the gospel. And so Lord, I pray that as we just consider and and, um, contemplate these common Christian practices that you would uh, show us in your word uh, where they come from and how they are for your glory and for our joy. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I wanna do before we get to Christian service and why we do it and what it's for, I wanna talk about what Christian service is not or, or what Christian work is not, or any of the five ones are not for that matter. Christian service and Christian works are not a means by which we earn our salvation or even earn extra love or extra favor from God. Christian works are not the means by which we are justified. And so to see what Christian service is not, we need to understand very clearly the doctrine of justification. And then we can understand what Christian works are after seeing what they're not. One of the questions that we have, or that we could ask anybody ourselves, or that we know is, are you a Christian? And we might know a lot of people who would say, yes, I am a Christian. The next question that we would ask is, how do you know you're a Christian? And this is where we can begin to stumble. This is where if we don't understand clearly the doctrine of justification, then we can get answers that don't line up with the Bible as to how we know we're Christians. Let's just start with Romans three, verse 20. It says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, the law brings knowledge of sin, but the law does not bring a cure for it. And we don't have time right now, but you could go through Romans three and four and see how Paul is establishing that gentiles are not worthy jews are not worthy there's no one that is worthy of righteousness there's none that are worthy of justification on their own and that the law simply reveals our unworthiness or our disqualification it does not save us romans three twenty two. he goes on the righteousness of god through faith in jesus christ for all who believe For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now this text is so important. We are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. And this is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Because if you scratch the surface of every other religion, regardless of its history and regardless of its teachers and its precepts, under the surface, all worldly religions say the same thing. They say you must have a religious experience. And after that religious experience, from that point on, you must do more good deeds than bad deeds. And having done more good deeds than bad, you hope in the afterlife, that your good outweighs your bad and you will be received or perhaps even worse if you really believe that you have done more good than bad then you can be confident that you have earned your salvation for yourself in the next life and that you must be received now that's an oversimplification obviously of every worldly religion but only slightly that is how they all operate first step is have a religious experience be initiated into the religion And then what do you do after you've had that religious experience? You try to do more good and behave more morally than immorally. Do more good than bad. And then you die and you hope your balance is good. Unfortunately there are many Christians who basically hold that same theology. There are people that say, I am a Christian, I had an experience, I prayed a prayer, I responded at a youth retreat, I raised my hand in a church service, I walked to the stage at a crusade, I signed the card, I was put under the water and I came up again. I've done the whole deal to get on the inside of the religious experience. And then you ask, okay, how do you know you go to heaven when you die? And even Christians will sometimes answer, well, I'm a good person. I try to do more good things than bad things. I hope that at the judgment, God will accept me. And unfortunately, even though some Christians don't say that outright, it's still how they live their lives. In other words, even though they can say that they understand that their salvation is by grace through faith, they are still working pragmatically and practically to earn something, or at least to make sure that their resume is good enough that God will accept it when they get to judgment. And what's missing in that approach to the Christian life is the doctrine of justification. What's missing in that is the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. What's missing is the reality of Christianity and what sets it apart from religion. It's the heart of Christianity. Christianity says righteousness, justification, right standing with God, salvation, comes not by our works at all, but is received as a gift by faith in what Jesus has done for us. I just want to read for you the 1969 Baptist Confession of Faith, which is a document on which hundreds, if not thousands, of subsequent confessions of faith have based themselves. Even though it was written over 400 years ago, it reads this way. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself or giving faith itself, the act of believing or any other evangelical obedience to them, in other words, counting it as credit that they had faith even, as their righteousness, but by imputing or counting Christ's act of obedience into the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul, righteous, by faith, which faith they have, not of themselves, it is the gift of God. So that text says and emphasizes again what is taught in the Scriptures, as Paul says in Ephesians 2 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The, ni- the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith basically says, we are not righteous, we have not been made righteous, we have been pardoned, and that even our faith that we have is not counted in our favor because even our faith is a gift of God which was given to us. Now, I wanted that spelled out right off the bat because not understanding justification, not understanding that we are saved, we are rescued, we are made righteous, we are counted as justified before God entirely entirely based on our trust in what Jesus has already done and not by our own works. If we don't understand that, then our understanding of Christian service, in fact, perhaps our understanding of all the five ones that we're talking about that Christians do, will be deeply flawed, even possibly heretical because it will lead to the completely wrong motivation for worship, for prayer, for discipleship, for service, and even for evangelism, because we will think that we are somehow earning something by our service and by our works. And we're not. And so we start by establishing right off the bat that when we talk about Christian ministry and Christian service, we are not talking about anything that earns us favor with God or earns us our salvation. We are talking about something that is a response to what God has already done. There are lots of bad motivations for ministry that are tied up in a wrong way of thinking about it. Sometimes we can be motivated to do ministry in the church out of pride, and that can be both obvious and subtle. You can have people perhaps who have a certain gift or a certain talent that they use in the church and they think that their gift is more for them to express themselves as it is for others to um, be ministered to you can have people who want to do ministry in the church for reasons of power either to have power and have some sort of control over their own life or others around them or the power to be served by others rather than to serve themselves or it could be even power or leverage over God that they're looking for. That they figure that if they serve in the church, then somehow God will owe them either favor in this life or will put God in our debt and require we'll be accepted in heaven because of everything we've done here. And these are subtle. You may not think that anyone thinks that way, but there are subconscious and unconscious reasons for which we serve that we have to examine in our heart. Sometimes we serve, and it would be a wrong motivation, to serve out of guilt. That we have to serve God as penance or as restitution for our past and present sins. The idea that you know, somehow God wants us to work off our debt and not believing that Christ has already paid it fully and trusting in Christ's work. Another bad motivation in addition to pride and power and guilt would be self-righteousness. The feeling that we earn favor or love from God by our works, that we are somehow made more holy because we do holy things, that our service keeps us in God's good books, or makes our place in heaven a little bit more sure because we're just that much better as Christians. Or in its worst form, similar to the power um, motivation, that our service to the church or our service to God's kingdom somehow puts God in our debt. And so our righteousness puts him in a place where he must accept us, that God owes us blessing. And if we're serving out of any of these wrong motives, then we are serving only in our own power and in the limitation of our flesh and for the wrong goal. And that kind of service ultimately wears us out and accomplishes less than our effort. So today what I want to do, knowing what Christian works are and and ministry in the church is not. It's not our justification. It's not our salvation. It's not our righteousness. And considering some of those bad motives for Christian service that we we don't do it out of pride to show off our talent. We don't do it so that other people serve us. We don't do it to have power in the church. We don't do it to... uh, Um, build up our self-righteousness and our holiness. We don't do it out of guilt feeling like we have to because we owe it to God or we have to pay off some debt. There are reasons why we do serve in the church and why one ministry for service or one characteristic of the church has always been that we serve. We serve the church, we serve our community, we serve those in need, we even serve our enemies why do we do this? And I'm going to look at three things. We do it out of the image bearing of Christ, which is our motivation to serve. We do it in the spirit of Christ, which is how we serve. And we do it for the gospel of Christ, which is why we serve. So first of all, let's look at this. We are motivated as Christians to serve by being image bearers of Christ. Jesus Christ is the image of what we are becoming. We don't serve in order to become like Christ, rather we serve as a natural outcome of the Holy Spirit having already started our transformation to be like Christ, and we are becoming like Christ, and therefore we serve like Christ. So let's look at that idea. First of all, we understand as believers, as Christians who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, we've received the Holy Spirit, that we are now in a process of becoming Christ-like, It's a long, slow process, and it won't be perfected until the end. But we are in a process of becoming more and more Christ-like as we move from faith to faith and in grace. John 3, 3, Jesus answers Nicodemus, explaining to him. He says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says to Nicodemus, You have to be born again. You have to be a new creation. 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so there's this idea that in Christianity, we are given a new being through the Holy Spirit, that we are still in our flesh, but we are in the midst of being transformed into Christ's likeness 1 John three two to three says dear friends now we are children of god and what we will be has not yet been made known we don't know yet exactly what we're going to be but we know that when he appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure so john says we, we don't know we don't understand we can't comprehend what we are becoming but we know that when jesus comes again when we see jesus we will see jesus for who he truly is and when we see him then we shall be like him because we are being transformed into the image of christ ephesians 5 1-2 paul says it this way be imitators of god therefore as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to god and so when we talk about christian service when we talk about christian ministry the motivation and what where it flows from is not pride or power or guilt or self-righteousness or any of those things. It flows from the reality that we are image bearers of Christ and we are becoming more and more like Christ. And Christ was a servant and so therefore we serve. Jesus came to serve, not to be served matthew twenty twenty five to twenty eight says Jesus called them together and said, "You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials and exercised authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to serve but to, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we start with this idea, first of all. That Christian service flows out of our image-bearing of Christ. That we are not meant to be served, but we are meant to serve others. That as we are becoming more and more Christ-like, we are becoming more Christ-like in the fact that he is a servant of those who he loves. And so we lay down our lives, just as Jesus did, for those of others. Or I should say, not just as Jesus did. Jesus could lay down his life for the, lives for the salvation of the, of the world. We lay down our lives to continue in the redemptive process that Jesus started. And so we lay down our preferences. We lay down our pride. We lay down our desires. We lay down and hold loosely to the things we want in our life in order to make room to serve others and the things that they need in their lives. So we work as Christians not in order to be transformed, but because we are transformed and we live out that transformed life. Secondly, as Christians, we serve in the Spirit of Christ. We serve with the power of the Holy Spirit and with the gifts that the Spirit has given us. We don't serve in our own power. So first of all, we serve with gifts. First Corinthians 12, four 4 five says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And it's time again for the spiritual gifts talk. And I give this little talk about every three years or so, just to remind those of us who are serving here about it, and to include those of you who have joined us maybe since the last time I gave this talk, just how important it is that we remember how spiritual gifts work together. Because there can sometimes be a lot of confusion about what the spiritual gifts are and about how they work together in the body of Christ. Paul says here, there are a variety of gifts And we don't all get the same gifts. But they're meant to work together in the church. Something like this. So just listen to this story. You've heard it before, some of you. It doesn't take long. But as you listen to this story, feel how you react to it. And the way you react to this story is an indicator of your gift and its role in the church. So imagine, you'll especially have to imagine those of you who are watching by video, That i'm preaching on the platform at the church as i usually do and somebody like say macy bielis or lincoln brown knows that i get thirsty when i preach and so they go and get me a glass of water and they start to bring the glass of water up to me on the platform as i am preaching and as they're bringing the glass of water they trip on the stairs and they drop the glass and the glass of water falls and it breaks on the stage and there's water and there's glass everywhere and all of this happens in front of you while you're watching now the way you would respond to this situation this need within the church sheds some light on your gifts and helps explain your role in a specific situation in the church so if you have the gift of prophecy you might say something like lincoln The world is full of pitfalls. Be careful how you walk lest you are led astray from the right path and there are consequences for that. Now you probably wouldn't say that to Lincoln but you see my point. My point is is that you would take the situation and you would turn it into a teaching moment because you have that gift of prophecy, you have that gift of truth telling and you want to make sure that the truth comes through clearly in the circumstances of people's lives. But maybe you have the gift of mercy rather than prophecy and you say, oh, Macy, I know exactly how you feel. I do that all the time. Don't listen to that prophecy guy. Just come give me a big hug. It's not a problem. You know, I, 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 I'm sensitive to what's happened to you and how you're feeling. Because you have the gift of mercy, that's how you would react. Or perhaps you have the gift of service. And so when you see this happen, your first thought would immediately be, where's the mop? I can clean this up right now before someone steps on the glass. We can get a dustpan and get this taken care of. And you would react that way, not thinking so much about the teaching or the truth of the situation, not so much about caring for the person that's in the situation first, but just how do I serve? How do I, how do I get this cleaned up? Because you have the gift of service. Or maybe you're looking at this situation and you have the gift of leadership. And so you're thinking, well, we need a system in place to make sure this doesn't happen again. We need to use plastic bottles and the worship team leader will make sure that there's one plastic bottle for each person on stage each Sunday and will label the bottles uh, with a Sharpie so they don't get mixed up and everybody has their own bottles and this won't happen again. That's a great example of leadership in action and how the gift of leadership works. Or maybe you have the gift of teaching. You say, Macy. When you carry the water, make sure there's no condensation on the glass. Make sure it's not slippery. Hold on to it with both hands and always watch where you're walking. And so you want to teach into the situation because you have the gift of teaching. Or maybe you have the gift of generosity and giving. And so when something like that happens, if there's an accident, something breaks, you see a need, your first thought is, how much is it going to cost to get some unbreakable clear cups? We're just going to buy 100 cups. They're made out of plastic. We don't have any more glass. I'll take care of it. I'll write a check today. The point of that story is, everybody looks at the same event and sees it through their own motivational gift perspective. It's not what's right or wrong, it's not that there's a right way and a wrong way to respond to the situation, it's how the whole body together, as a whole church sees things taking place in their midst, responds to those events. And of course there are other gifts and other events that are all active and involved all the time in our church life. As people are in hospital, as people have financial need, as people uh, need comfort, as people need counseling, as um, certain situations happen in people's lives, as children grow up, as they go away to college, as um, anything happens in our life. Christians in the church see that event through their gifting and then they are called to serve out of that gifting, because it's been given by God to serve the church. We must be understanding with each other that not everyone sees the needs of the church exactly the same, nor is equipped to respond to the hardest and deepest needs in exactly the same way. For most situations of encouragement or mercy or teaching or prophecy, we can all do it most of the time. If there is some teaching that's needed or some comfort that's required, we all have it in us as we become image bearers of Christ to provide that. But at the most extreme levels, you want the people who have that gift involved. When there is extreme need for teaching, when there is extreme need for counsel, when there is an extreme need for mercy or for compassion, then you want the person who is greatest at that gift in that situation. so in the church as you consider how you serve and where you serve you can consider the gifts that are outlined in romans and in corinthians and all those places that the spiritual gifts are mentioned and you can also just remember this little story and you can think how did i respond to that story what is it that god has given me to decide how to respond and how to act within the body of christ And if you see a need in the church at the same time, if water is spilled and needs to be mopped up, then mop it up. Don't say, well, I don't have the gift of service, and so I'll wait for the person with the gift of service to do it. As I said, all of us have some level of all the gifts. There are just some gifts that we have more zeal for and more passion for, and God has given us more competency in. Secondly, when we talk about serving in the Spirit of Christ, we look at our gifts, but we also look at our passions. God gives gifts, but he also gives unique passions. Romans 12, 11 says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. So Paul says explicitly, there's a spiritual passion that we have to serve the Lord. And our passion sometimes shows up in noticing the lack of the same passion in others. If you're sitting at Lakeside or you, are participating in us as a body of christ you can sometimes note the lack of passion other people have because it's your passion so you'll say things like this church needs more people who care about x or if i could change one thing at lakeside it would be that we do y and what is usually it is is we should be doing more of that thing that I'm passionate about. So that's an indicator of our passion. What is it that we feel Lakeside should be doing more of? What is it that we feel we're not doing enough of? That's our passion. And so as you fill in the blank, we should pray more we should have more outreach and evangelism we should show more mercy we should visit shut-ins more there isn't enough counseling i think we should have more bible studies we need to do more in global missions we're not getting the gospel out enough we need more evangelism those are right passions and right gifts that you have but it's the whole body that must meet those needs so in other words as you fill in that blank and you say i think lakeside should do more of x then you recognize that that's your passion. And there are probably half a dozen people that have that same passion that you do. And that's God's calling for you to be involved in that thing. There are other people with passions and gifts in other areas that aren't your passion and gifts. You have passions and gifts in your areas and God indicates those to you with that sense of urgency or unrest or discontent that more needs to be done there. So now maybe it's sometimes it's true. Maybe there is something that I or the church should be doing that others need to join in. But most often when you have those thoughts in your heart, it's not that you need to go out and get other people to join in your passion. What you need to do is work in the passion that God has given you. The spirit is moving you to notice that need. And the spirit talks to me too. He tells me what I need to do and I trust that he speaks to you. So if you're noticing something lacking here in the body of Christ at Lakeside, if you notice that there is a field that's ripe for the harvest, then God wants you to lead workers into that field. God gives us the church as a framework for using these gifts. First Corinthians 12, 12 says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So this is why, as we consider one ministry for service, we remember that all through history, for 2000 years, wherever you have found Christians gathering, you've found them serving. You've found them serving as they imitate Christ as a servant, and you've found them serving in the power of the Holy Spirit, out of their spiritual gifts and out of their zeal for serving Christ, and they do so within the church. So this is the right place to put your passion and your gifts. And then thirdly, we serving We're serving the gospel of Christ. It's why we are serving. We are participating in the redeeming work that Christ has established on the cross and is continuing to work out in the world. The good news that Christ has paid the price, that we can trust in him for our salvation, and that the world is being renewed and made new, one life at a time through Jesus Christ. That is why we serve. We serve in the gospel of Christ. Paul puts it this way in his ministry in Romans 1. He says in Romans 1 9, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. So Paul says, I'm serving, I'm serving in the spirit, and I'm serving the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're not talking about the gospel just as it pertains to do you understand who the person of Jesus is? and that he gave his life on the cross to pay for your sins and to set you free from the bondage of sin so that you can have relationship with God forever. That's the gospel in a nutshell, but the gospel is so much broader than that. The gospel, the good news is the entire redemptive work that God has been doing through history to rescue people out of darkness and to heal the brokenhearted and to set the prisoners free. And so as we serve in the body of Christ, imitating Christ, in the spirit, we are serving the gospel of Christ. We're serving that good news and that redeeming work. Not only that, the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us the value of everyone we encounter and we serve. When we think of Christ on the cross and his sacrifice for us, then it tells us how valuable everyone is and how much they are worthy of our service. It teaches us the price that God was willing to pay to redeem them. It shows us the lengths that we should go for peace and for reconciliation and for healing and for comfort. Paul perfectly captures this idea when he says in Colossians one twenty four, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Don't miss what Paul is saying there. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He says elsewhere, I pour my life out like a drink offering. In other words, he lays his life down. And he does that in service, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, meaning that Christ is not here now to serve. And so Paul is serving in the stead of Christ as the body of Christ, as the church is called. And he does it for the sake of Christ's body, that is the church. So Paul is saying, I lay down my life. I suffer I set my own desires aside I pour myself out to serve I do so because of Christ I do so because you are the body of Christ and I do so for the church so Paul applies the affliction of Christ being the cross he applies the gospel to everything that he does for the church and we can do the same thing we need to apply this in our Christian service to our spouse as Paul does in Ephesians 5:25 and to our children in Ephesians 6-4, but also in serving each other, as we read in Galatians 6-2, being burden bearers or Galatians 6:10, where it says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And of course, as I mentioned, you have all those chapters in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, Ephesians 4, 8 to 16, All these gifts and all these passion are given, not just to proclaim the gospel, but to live out the gospel of humble life-giving for the purpose of healing and bearing and restoring and redeeming. And so we understand then as Christians that when we work, when we serve in ministry, we are doing so because we are image bearers of Christ and he is a servant and that we are doing so not to become image bearers of Christ, but because we already are image bearers of Christ. We're doing so not to earn our salvation, but because we already have been saved and we're fully satisfied in Christ. And so we serve out of that reality. We serve with the power of the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us, with the gifts that we've been given and with the passions that we have. And we serve for the gospel. We serve so that the gospel literally can go forth that people can hear about the good news of Jesus, but we serve because of the gospel, because we understand by what Jesus has done on the cross, that he is in the process of redeeming the world and that we are part of that process. We are part of the healing and redeeming and restoration of those lives around us and that God includes us in that work. And so that's why we serve in ministry. And so everything that you do, you're doing in terms of this service Paul would say, you're not just playing with kids in the nursery. You're not just vacuuming a floor. You're not just hosting a Bible study. You're not just doing crafts in Sunday school. You're not just updating a website. You are serving the redemptive plan of God for mankind in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's important for us here at Lakeside. It's important even now, especially as we've been bringing this series back to talk about at various times, the reality uh, of the COVID and the pandemic season that we're in that it is tempting to drift downstream, that it is tempting to disengage, that it is easy to lose sight that we are doing things for God. But the importance of serving in the church is is as more important now as ever. The technology that brings you each Sunday service is assembled and operated by volunteers. Your kids are getting good gospel teaching by volunteers. Life groups are run by volunteers. Wednesday Family Night has dozens of people who participate in various ways to make family night work over the year. The women of the word Bible studies, the men's Bible studies have volunteers. Blast and Riot have volunteers. All this great music that we hear every Sunday, volunteers. Pretty much everything that goes on here are people who have chosen at least one ministry for service. And they either do it entirely or they have the biggest role in it. It is the people of God serving in the spirit of God who make the church operate as the body of Christ so where is your zeal for serving today are you serving for your image or for the image of Christ are you serving in your power or in the power of the Spirit in the strength of your spiritual gifts or out of a sense of duty as a means of somehow keeping the balance in your favor with God so you don't feel guilty or so that you can deserve a break from serving in the future or are you doing it out of compassion and out of zeal for God and for the gospel And for others. Jesus says, you bear my image and I didn't come to be served but to serve. I gave you a spiritual gift and a heavenly power of service. I gave you zeal for the church. I placed you in a spiritual body. I've given you a purpose in your life and in my redeeming work, my redeeming gospel work. So what is the one place that you are serving the gospel in the area of your passion and your spiritual gift? If you can't easily name that area, then take the initiative to find it and join God in his work. There is much left for us to do, much left for us to do in this community. The body of Christ needs all the gifts and all the workers, for the fields are ripe for the harvest. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we don't have to earn our salvation We thank you that we don't work because we have to somehow get our resume filled up just right before we encounter you at the judgment seat. We thank you that we can work out of the joy and satisfaction that Christ has already done all the salvation work for us, that we are redeemed and counted justified, that we are counted as righteous because of what he has done. And so now, Lord, we pray that you would show us how you would have us, serve in your church and serve the body to be participants in the gospel, even as we are becoming image bearers of your son. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.